point her hands high to you and give you all the praise and all the glory with her life. I pray, God, that you would just right now just empty her out of herself, all of her words, all of her racing thoughts, any nervousness, that you would just fill her up from her head to her toes with your spirit, your spirit of love, of peace. And I just thank you that you are such such a marvelous, magnificent, awesome God that you have decided to spread your word and your truth this way, where you use us. You speak through us. That's like, I just love that God. That is so um, humbling and awesome. And so I thank you that you will speak through Karen this morning and that you will use her story to change and mold and transform our hearts to be um, your people out in the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm wired. Oh, you're good. I'm wired. So I'm feeling like that awkward child right now. <laughs> uh, previous to this moment, my, um, my, my uh, public speaking to grown-ups has been back to school night <laughs> for my fifth grade and second grade parents, which brought about the same measure of fear that, that right now has, but... <laughs> but that's okay. You guys are friendly people and you're practicing on me, so I, I greatly appreciate that. Um, there's no easy way to start, but just to start. So we'll start back in with Paul's letter to Corinthians. Um, this comes as a result of the church asking Paul for advice. It was a lively seaport city, bustling with people from different cultures and different traditions, and he sought, they sought his counsel on different questions and problems. They were divided on some issues, and they were looking to Paul to help settle their differences. We saw in the very first chapter that they were divided on which leader they would follow. Some preferred the teaching and style of Apollos, and some said they belonged to Cephas, and others said they wanted Paul himself. Back in chapter 4, Paul dealt with their arrogance and thinking that it was their place to judge one another. Chapter 5, that we heard from last time, spoke to some of the sexual immorality at the time that had gotten so bad they were even bragging about it. And then in chapter 6, the practice of believers suing other believers was addressed. So now we're in chapter 7, and Paul's advice is sought once again. In light of the immorality of the previous chapters, he was asked about marriage, remarriage, and divorce. He was also asked about circumcision, which I feel very confident not discussing with you this morning. (laughs) Just as some were casting off all moral restraint, still others wanted a great moral strictness. So Paul tries to bring balance to these diverse cultures and different practices. Some were of the opinion that it was best to be married. Others felt that remaining unmarried was more holy, and others even pressured married couples to abstain from intimacy because that was the path to holiness. Paul in this chapter offers wise 
Christian advice based on his biblical understanding. He's careful to state in chapter 7 that much of what he has to say is his own opinion, but he's also clearly sharing the commands of Jesus. Paul promotes marriage as mutually a mutually fulfilling relationship, not to be used for power or control, but to be enjoyed equally by both spouses. He also honors those who chose to remain unmarried. He says that both require different gifts freely bestowed by God. It's God's gift that blesses each choice. This was a very revolutionary opinion at the time because there was tremendous pressure placed on divorced women and widows in particular to remarry quickly. But he is clear to state that neither is preferred. Both are perfectly acceptable, and there are much more important things to consider here. So in looking at all Paul says in chapter 7, which mostly seems about the rules, what's he really getting at? What is the most important thing? As in the previous chapters, he continues to make the main thing the main thing, the people's relationship with Jesus. He wants the Corinthian believers to keep Jesus at the center of their lives, their thoughts, and their story. Their position regarding whether or not to marry or stay married is not the most important thing. It's about their focus on Jesus, And if they maintain that focus, everything else will sort itself out. He wanted them to know that their story intertwined with Jesus' story. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul tells them that they are God's holy people set aside for his purpose. Ryan did such an amazing job on Sunday explaining how ordinary things and ordinary people can be used for God's extraordinary purpose. He had something in special in mind for this church and that that is where their focus should be. He wanted this church of believers to be free from the distraction by some of the anxieties they were experiencing and to keep their service to the Lord and their trust in him the most important thing. By the end of the chapter, he tells them it's best to remain as they are, whether married or unmarried, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, to present themselves to the Lord for his purpose. And I believe that God has the same message for us today. Keeping our focus on Jesus is the main thing, and serving him wholly with exactly who we are and where we are, not waiting for life circumstances to change, but accepting where he has us in this moment. So it's more than a little bit ironic that I'm standing here sharing this chapter. As Katie explained, I was originally asked to write a deeper reflection, and to me that felt like a huge step of faith. Um, And so I agreed. So when the chapter was suggested, it didn't really ring a bell right away, what the content of the chapter was. So I read it, and I thought, oh, heavens no. (laughs) I am not going to write about that. And then I was asked, slightly pressured, to (laughs) share this morning. And I thought, there is really no way. See, I'm much more comfortable standing in front of children and not scary grown-ups. But the words of this chapter hit me hard with guilt and shame. You see, I've been divorced twice. And I've been remarried twice. 
how could I possibly have anything to share on this topic that I felt so guilty of? To be fair, I was given an out. Katie, in fact, said I, she almost switched the chapter before she ever asked me, knowing a little bit of my story. But I couldn't shake the feeling, and I tried, that God had not slipped up in giving me the wrong chapter. In fact, I came to believe that he knew what he was doing and that maybe I could be used to share some of the love and the grace and the hope that I had experienced. You see, I'd asked for forgiveness many times for this sin, and I was assured that the sin was behind me. Yet reading these words caused me to feel that shame all over again. So I knew that maybe somebody else has been in my position or maybe is in the position that I was in right now and that those words might bring the same sense of shame. As believers, we know that God takes the covenant between a man and a woman seriously. Genesis 2.24 says that a man and a woman become one flesh when they are united in marriage. And it was never his intention that this intimate and unique relationship between his children end in divorce. He loves us so much and knows the deep pain when, marriage, when the marriage covenant is broken. If you've suffered the pain of divorce or know someone who has, you understand the depth of this pain. It's not just limited to the couple involved, but extends to the children who are greatly affected in numerous ways which can be devastating. Friendships can suffer when friends feel they need to choose sides. In-law relationships that were loving and strong can become strained and even terminated. I often visited my former mother-in-law who lived in the Bay Area when I went to see my own parents and I was greatly hurt when I received a letter from her telling me it was best for everyone if I didn't come visit her anymore. Our church communities suffer when families break apart and there are often significant financial struggles involved with divorce. Divorce hurts both parties, but this is very important. Remaining in a marriage that's been affected by neglect, abuse, or unfaithfulness can be worse. You see, it's the sin that ends a marriage that grieves God, not necessarily the legal process that brings it to an end. My first marriage ended when I was 30 years old. We'd been married just under seven years when my husband, who was a youth pastor, had an affair with a college student who worked with him in ministry. We had two young sons, ages 18 months and three years old, and the college student had been a friend of mine. Needless to say, our world was turned upside down. Reconciliation was not something my husband wanted, so our marriage ended in divorce. Early on, I was so hurt but even more angry. This was not the life I wanted, nor the life I expected would be mine. I kept waiting and hoping that this nightmare would end, and the life I wanted as a family would be restored. But that didn't happen. I knew in my head, eventually, I would have to forgive him, but I couldn't see how that would ever be possible in my heart. I clung to the verse, Isaiah 34, 8, for the Lord has a day of vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> it 
and it couldn't come hard enough or soon enough for me. <laughs> I will admit to planning more than once his untimely and tragic death. <laughs> but I also didn't want to spend my life in jail away from my children. So um, all I could do was feel my feelings, share them with trusted friends, and know that in time, probably a lot of time, my heart would heal and God would restore me. It's hard to forgive your enemy when he's the father of your children. I also knew I could not let my heart become bitter. Bitterness is defined as feeling deep, bitter anger, ill will, resentment, hostility. I had those bases pretty much covered. I'd seen long-term bitterness in my own parents' divorce, and it separated me from the bitter parent. I knew I didn't want that for me and my children. You see, bitterness not only separates us from others, but it drives a wedge between us and the perfect love God gives us. Years later, after my ex and college friend had married and had two children of their own, their marriage was in serious trouble. My ex was on trial for domestic violence, and I was subpoenaed to be a character witness for him at his trial. I had to laugh at God bringing such a ridiculous circumstance, but I knew in that moment I'd forgiven him because I took no delight in the situation he found himself in. Once when my boys were small, maybe six or seven, they had come back from a visit to their dad's house and said, Mom, I think you like dad more than he likes you. And I thought, well, I seriously doubt it, but I knew I was on the right track to keeping my heart from becoming bitter. Another side effect of being rejected in a marriage relationship is often a spiritual one. If the husband who's supposed to love me unconditionally changes his mind, what about the God of the universe who says he loves me in the same way? It's not a huge stretch to think that maybe he doesn't. I heard these words from my husband, I care for you, I just don't care enough. Was it possible that God could feel the same way? I often wondered, is he mad at me for being divorced? And who am I now in his eyes and is there hope? I can confidently say today that yes, he loves me, he loves you, he sees you, and there definitely is hope. We're all guilty of sin, in God's, and in God's eyes, there's no big sins and little sins. Romans 3.10 tells us there's no one righteous, not even one. And on in Romans 3.23, we are reminded all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is actually good news, because we're all in the same boat, needing forgiveness. We can have confidence when we read 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Romans 4.8, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. We know we are loved when we read Peter 4.8, which tells us that God covers a multitude of sins. God's choice to love us came before we were born and does not change with our choices. We can do nothing to make us love him love us more, and we can do nothing to make him love us less. 
in a quote by Lisa Turkers, we are reminded, she says, nothing that ever happens to us will ever change God's love for us. We know he hates divorce, but he loves us more. It's so important that once we confess our sin and receive the Lord's forgiveness, we no longer pick up and carry the shame and guilt that is associated with that sin. We're intended to live in freedom once we are forgiven. Such grace. There were many times, especially in the early days, I felt little hope for my future. Eventually, I became content being single and focused on my children and my job. My relationship with God improved, and I had the tremendous support of believing friends and a church community. I knew that Romans 8:28 said, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Although there is nothing good about a marriage ending, God can bring good from it. In hindsight, I can see much of what was good. Even though I intended to be a stay-at-home mom, I found myself enjoying a 26-year-long teaching career. And in that time, I had many students in my classes who were going through some of the same things my own children had gone through. I also had many opportunities to encourage single parents and help them navigate the difficulties in co-parenting. My kids are in their 30s now, and my relationship with them is strong, and I enjoy the wonderful men that they've become. I've kept bitterness and resentment from defining their growing up years, and now we are free to enjoy each other as adults. Over time, my relationship with God was restored, and I've been able to accept his love and forgiveness and so much grace. Nine years ago, I married my husband, Glenn, who has a similar story as mine. We both feel blessed to be together and serve the Lord in whatever way he chooses. We have six children between us, and we continue to face the challenges that come with being in a remarriage. Sometimes the blending of family works really well, and sometimes it takes a little more time and a lot of grace, and in our case, a lot of patience. We continue to have hope that the relationships in our family will heal and grow. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he tells his followers to put their hope in God, who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. So if divorce is part of your story, or your life has been changed by a divorce of a parent or someone you know, whether you're currently married or single, God sees you just where you are. He loves you more than you know, and he calls you to love and serve him above all else. Two weeks ago, Katie shared a few songs with us. One of them is called, The Kingdom is Yours. And the recurring words of that song are, hold on a little more. This is not the end. Hope is in the Lord. Keep your eyes on him. Sorry. I left you with an awkward moment. 